0: Hello and welcome to the International Journal of Gynaecological Cancer's Mentors podcast. As editorial fellows, we wanted to learn from the amazing leaders in our field and take inspiration from their experiences. Today, we are honoured to speak with Professor Andreas Dubois. He is the Director of the Clinic for Gynaecology and Gynaecological Oncology at the Cancer Centre of the SME Clinic and Founder and Study Leader of the Gynaecological Oncology Working Group, or the AGO Study Group. With me today is Irina from Austria, Nicolo from Italy, Alex Hello. from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Arthur from Taiwan, and I am Anna from the UK. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Dubois.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> OK, so um, I'll kick off with the first question. Um, we just want to know what led you to gyne oncology and would you still choose this specialty? Uh,
1: let me uh, let me answer the, the second part first. Yes. I would choose it again. So uh, I'm, I'm close to the end of my career now, but I would just do the same as I had done. So gynecological oncology is, is such a wonderful area and such a broad area. And uh, I never regret having chosen that. So how did I start? As most of you, probably when we start with gynecology, we are fascinated from obstetrics. So I started in obstetrics and I, I, I found it great, uh, the delivery of the babies and all the lucky people and, and uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of luck hormones and so on. And uh, then I had a case of a pregnant woman with a high-grade non-Hodgkin lymphoma. She was o- o- almost dead when, he came, when she came to the clinic and it was a, a huge journey to, to rescue her and to save her life and the life's baby and so i was first not, not not for the first time but it was very intense for me to to see the importance of oncology in a practical phase and several weeks not not many weeks later we had the same case and this lady died finally and and only the the child survived and so so the 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 experience of these two cases made me, made me curious to learn more about oncology. And so I started, my, one of my first scientific papers was on the interaction of pregnancy and, and, and oncology. And the second one was the impact of pregnancy on oncologic outcome. And then I was into oncology. So, so that was my way into gynecological oncology.
0: Perfect it's incredible how much patients change our experiences and change our practice yeah um so moving on from that, what have been the most exciting moments of your career?
1: Oh there are there are so many so many exciting moments I mean, let's say we're the closest i had I had last week or or two weeks ago uh, I had my outpatient clinic, and uh, uh my patients now knew. Uh, that that I'm at the end of my career, and so it's maybe the last visit uh, uh, to my to my office. And so the, a patient came, which I operated 16 or 17 years ago, and she had a stage four ovarian cancer, and all her doctors had said, "Oh, that's it, go home and and and, and sort your things out. That's it." And uh, I operated this this patient, and it was a remarkably uh, huge operation. It was more or less 14 or 16 hours. So we operated until the evening. Then I was too tired to continue. Then I slept and the patient was still under anesthesia. And in the morning I completed the rest by doing the cervical and supraclavicle and axillary lymph nodes, which were all packed. So the patient was free of disease. And these patients came to me and said, now you have given me such a long time and now i had become grandma and I've, I've experienced all that and she still does not have a recurrence so this is a moment but this is a moment that pays back for hours and years and blood sweat and tears so this is one one aspect the other aspect i want to mention in that is my first ASCO presentation, my my first oral in the main program of ASCO. I mean, I will never forget that. Uh, so when I was the first time as a listener at ASCO, I was deeply impressed. At those days, ASCO was small. It was 3,000 participants. But I was so impressed about that. And at that time, I said, oh, I want to stay there once in my professional life and give a presentation here. So a few years y- later I had my first and that was that was an amazing moment for me. And the third maybe what I what I want to mention is when, when I had the honor to chair the third ovarian cancer consensus conference of, of of GCIG, the global consensus, that was a major, a major honor for me. So these are three moments I remember, but there are so many.
0: Perfect. I think I can share um, the feeling. The last uh, ESGA conference in Athens, I certainly felt the same about being in the audience. (laughs) um, I can share this at the early point in my career. (laughs) Um, So our next question is, uh, there have been huge advances in in ovarian cancer in terms of surgical trials, targeted therapies. Um, how do you think we will treat ovarian cancer in 10 years' time? And do you think we will manage to improve patient survival?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. So, so when, I, when I go back to the start of my career, my, my first teacher was uh, in, in, in Germany. We call him, uh, he invented ovarian cancer in Germany. So he was the first who really focused on that a long time ago, long time ago, almost, almost more than 35 years ago. Uh, and and he, had, he had a slide at those days, the slides were still painted. And he had a slide saying uh, chemotherapy may be good now, but in five years, we, will don't, have, we don't have it. Uh, so, so there's always a lot of optimism. I can now look back for, for more than 30 years in gynecological oncology and we're still doing the operation, we're still giving the chemotherapy. Also, every two years, something new pops up and say, oh, we, we don't need that anymore. We have now such great things, immunotherapies, or now it's a PARP inhibitors and so on. In the end, everything adds a little bit to outcome. So we are much better than we had been 30 years ago, but still the old things are, are of value and i don't i don't believe that within the next few years there is such a revolutionary event that we don't need surgery that we don't need chemotherapy or 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 other things i think everything will have its place we are getting better to know who the patients are who best benefit from surgery who are those best benefit from from chemo who are those best benefiting from, let's say, angiogenesis or PARP or whatever. So we are getting better by getting more specific, more personalized, but none of the, none of the tools will not be needed in 10 years. I think so.
0: (laughs) Perfect. So I'll hand over to Irina now for the next set of questions. Thank you Anna and thank you
2: professor Dubois uh, that you have joined us that you agreed to participate we are very very honored to speak to you today so my question was actually what do you think will we still need surgery for ovarian cancer in 10 years or in 20 years
1: yes i'm absolutely yes. convinced so far <laughs> every every new drug we have invented only adds to a good surgery so even when you look, even when, you, I mean, Niccolo is here and the Gemelli group has published uh, uh, recently a paper on the role of, of complete cytoreduction in BRCA. Yeah, even those patients who have a very high sensitivity for, 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 for systemic treatment, for chemo and for parp inhibitors, even those patients do better if they have a good surgery. So it will not be replaced. It adds and is a basis to other therapies. And if you combine many good things, the results are good. So I, I, currently I cannot, I cannot see that we don't need it. I mean, we, we may better identify those who need it upfront or later or very radical or modified or so, but the modality it, itself, will, will sti- still be with us in the next decade.
2: Thank you, great answer. And um, my next question is, why are we still failing to cure ovarian cancer? What do you think?
1: That's a very good question. So when, when, when we look on what we have achieved, uh, we have almost doubled the survival time in ovarian cancer. So, so patients now, compared to decades ago, live much longer. However, the, the proportion of patients who are cured is not in, has not increased so much. So maybe a little bit, but, but mainly in, in, in early disease yeah, maybe, but, but mm-hmm. not so much in advanced disease, but patients are now living double or three times as long. So there is progress. But final cure, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. Maybe, maybe nowadays the patients we treat today, maybe some of them will really be cured. We, we, we see in, the, in, in studies with uh, using the PARP as maintenance together with all other modalities, and especially the subgroup with a good operation and a chemo, and then angiogenesis and PARP. In this, in this subgroup, we see extremely long-term progression-free survival that may add to cure. So maybe we start curing some patients, but yeah, why not? Ovarian cancer is a survivor. I mean, the cells are really, really, <laughs> they can take a lot. <laughs> so so uh, I think we have to work hard to understand the molecular basis on that. and maybe we need other targets and targeted therapies to, to hit these. I mean, either the dormant cells who, who survive chemo or the cells who can recover from chemo and so on.
2: Thank you, thank you for this answer. And uh, my last un- uh, question is, uh, could you share with us how do, did you come up with the idea of founding the AGO study group back in the 90s and how is it different now after almost 30 years?
1: Yeah, at those days, there was only one study group in the world and that was the GOG in the US. And uh, there was another one which was ERTC, but that was not very much in gynecology that was more on mm-hmm. GI uh, cancer and sarcoma and so on. And so all the, the, the standards and guidelines we had at those days, which was sparse in comparison to what we have today, but all that came only from GOG. And uh, uh, in, in, in Europe and especially in Germany, uh, there were a lot of, I called them at those days, the dukes of oncology. So sitting in one city, believing that they are God, they know everything, they can everything, but they don't cooperating with anybody else. And the evidence they produced was evidence level five. It was just single small series in single institutions without control. So I call them the dukes of oncology. And I said, the medieval times is over, so we don't need dukes, we we need cooperation. And uh, so I looked to America at those days and I had some friends in 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 the M, in, in the Memorial Sloan catering of those days. I visited them and I saw how efficient it could be to develop evidence when you cooperate. And that was a start. so I I I said we have to found a study group and there's no way uh, other than that if we want to produce evidence and that was. Uh, in 1993, when I started AGO. And AGO now is the biggest, or maybe after GOG, the biggest study group in the world in gynecological oncology. So it worked. (laughs) It worked.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you so much. And now I think uh, Nico has some questions.
3: Yes. So uh, thank you, Professor Dubois for being here with us. It's such a great honor having the opportunity to make this interview with you. So my question is uh, uh, after the impressive results of surgery in recurrent disease uh, with the the desktop three study, uh, we all believe in surgery and we were all very well, well impressed by that. So my question is, what do you think is the next step after desktop three results?
1: Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, especially in recurrent ovarian cancer, the next step would be to refine the AGO score. Uh, I mean, desktop three, desktop three uh, validated a score, a surgical score, which is, uh, by the way, I mean, your group has, has developed also also a score, the Forgotti score, but but it's it's pretty new that we have a biomarker. A score is nothing else than a biomarker for predicting surgical outcomes. So so that was unique. The AGO score was, as far as I know, the first prospectively validated score we had Oncological oncology, and it's good, it helps. You see that the GOD study is negative, ours positive, and the main difference is that we use a score to select the right patients. So, but that has to be refined. I mean, nowadays, the primary treatment is a different one from those that, that was when we started desktop. So we have more neoadjuvant treatment, we have maintenance therapy, which was not present at that time when we did desktop. So we have to refine it and we have to to work on it, to even improve it. I mean the desktop score, the AGO score is good, but it's not perfect. So the next step is to refine it, to make it even better. and so so to improve the selection. That is I think the next step which should be done. Then the other next step which we which we should evaluate is a question whether we can, uh, if we know that surgery, successful surgery, prolongs overall survival, does it then play a role when we detect the, the recurrence? Uh, in, in, in desktop, that was not the question. And all the patients in desktop had a clinical uh, relapse. So can we change things by having a different type of monitoring? Uh, so, so would it help? to detect a recurrence earlier, to improve the complete resection rate, for example. These are all questions that can be addressed uh, now. And these are only two
3: of of many questions. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. More food for thoughts, I would say. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for your answer. So my next question to you is, uh, what are your tips for being a medical leader and innovator?
1: Yeah that's mm-hmm. that's a very good question. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first things is, is you have to realize that you alone are nothing and you alone cannot change the world. So if you really want to change things then you have to start very early networking cooperation cooperation yeah. cooperation. And a fruitful cooperation only works if you share not only the workload but also the rewards. So, so, it's very important that you build your cooperation, not only on motivation, but also on, on harvesting things together. Uh, so, if you, have, if you have realized that, that is a very good uh, prerequisite for becoming a leader. And then you have to work a lot. I mean, it sounds easy in the end when you stay there and present at ASCO, But you can imagine there's a lot of work behind that. So, and all the leaders I know in gynecological oncology, all of them have done the extra hours. I mean, I know that you in, 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 in Rome do the extra hours, anyhow, (laughs) but, but you need it, you need it. And, and you should, I mean, another thing is networking, hard work, and you should be open-minded and, and, and look not only on one things. I mean, we all know people in our field who are famous for one technique or one kind of operation or something like that. That does not lead to success. That leads maybe to, to one good paper. And, and if, you, if you're lucky, you have uh, one name for something, but that is not really progress. So, you have to be broad in your mind, you have to be cooperative, and you have to work hard, and that's it. And then you have to have luck. You have to have luck to meet the right people, to, get, to find the right doors, and, and all that is luck.
3: Thank you. I think we will make a really treasure of your words that, that will, will be very, very important for our future. And uh, we are all, uh, I think I can speak for all my colleagues, we are driven by passion and, and enthusiasm. So uh, we will for sure find the right network and connection. Yeah. And, and we and will follow your, your tips. Don't be shy.
1: Walk, walk to the dinosaurs in our field and ask them. Most of them are very open-minded and most of them like to share their experience and their knowledge. Thank you. Thank and you if the, you if, you, if so you don't important. if you if you don't succeed in your own in your own country in your own institution, then go abroad.
3: Uh, Thank you. Sometimes That's it's easier.
1: Important. Sometimes it's easier to 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 find something there and then go back.
3: <laughs> That's great thank you so my next question is what uh, uh, do you look for in a fellow or in a trainee in Gynecological oncology fellows
1: well that's that's also a very good question so i, I personally don't care so much about uh, paperwork and and and, and uh, ratings or something like that so i i i more when i when i read a cv uh, it interests me more what, what else this person has done? So what are the interests? Have they worked for a charity? Has it uh, experience in sports or something in team playing or what, whatever? So, so I, I try to figure out the personality first. This is much more important for me than the, the, the level of, of examen, exams. Uh, uh, so, so that is one thing. And I, I always want to be convinced. I mean, when I, as a mentor, take a fellow and say, okay, I invest now the next three years and share a lot of my experience, spend extra time in the OR because I mean, when you operate and I help you, we are much slower. So, so I have to have, I have more work. So I invest in that. So I want to be convinced that it is worth investing it. So, so and and the question is question of personality. Is there empathy? Is there passion? Is there curiosity? And is there the willing, the will, the will to go this one step more, this one hour more, even when you are tired in the operation theater, but you don't give up and, and all these things. So that's what I wanted to, to, to see. Uh, I want to see burning eyes. yeah? And everything else you can learn. I usually, when when fellows come to my institution and they start, I, I tell them in the first day, I know that you are not able of anything. I know that. So, and that's not the reason why you're here. You're not here to teach me. Uh, so, so, I don't expect anything. But what I expect is that you are willing to learn everything. And at the end, you should be a person that I can ask questions, that I can ask for advice. So be free in mind, go broad. And, 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 and that's, that's what, what I try to figure out. And everything else you can learn.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much for, for your time and for your answers. I will give the word to Arthur for the next question. Thank you
4: again. It's a pleasure. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Uh, thank you so much, Professor Dubois, it's really uh, our honor to speak to you. So my first question is, um, in 2005, you published an article titled Why Institutions Do Not Participate in Ovarian Cancer Trials? Results from a survey in Germany. So 85 of the clinics said they are not participating in trials for ovarian cancer. Most commonly noted arguments were limited resources for documentation and for informing patients, high cost of study treatment, and about one half of non-parti- non-participants declined, uh, stated patients declined informed consent. And that taking part in the trial is an additional burden. But, but now we all know that uh, AGO and NGOT is very successful in conducting trials. And can you tell us how you overcame these obstacles through these years, yeah. thank you.
1: A very, very good question. Yeah, we we always try to understand why centers participate in trials and others not, and we wanted to help them to build up their structure. Uh, if if they are big enough that it's worth uh, building up a structure, and we wanted to convince them, so we we developed a program of helping clinics to establish infrastructure. So. Of these 85%, the majority still will not do studies, but some of them we could convince. And in the meantime, there was a concentration of patients and study centers, uh, study centers also, they are not the majority of all centers in our country, but they treat the majority of patients in the meantime. Uh, this was one paper, another paper. In another paper, we could show that survival of patients being treated in study centers is better than in, in, in centers not participating in studies, even for those patients who are not in the study. So what we could, what we could, what we could demonstrate is that study participation is a quality item for a center. And that we published that and then we went to the public. And in, in Germany, we shared a public a public web page where all patients found all centers in Germany and the information, whether they participate in quality management, whether they participate in clinical studies. So that helped a lot to make it more attractive uh, to be on that, on that page. And what we found is that in the meantime, study participation is a positive attitude of a clinic. And it's not not as it has been 20 years ago when patients said, oh, I don't want to be a guinea pig. Nowadays, patients ask for study participation. So the attitude has changed. But there was a a long way for that. It was a long program to convince the public and to convince the centers on the other hand, a lot of centers not convinced has become smaller. So they don't treat so much ovarian cancer uh, anymore, or they have so low uh, resources that they
4: really can do it. And thank you so much for sharing this, uh, Professor Dubois. And um, uh, my next question is, I nowadays seen...
1: to, to add that nowadays, uh, about one third of the of the centers in Germany that which uh, treat ovarian cancer uh, have also access to studies. That's much better than it had been.
4: It's so encouraging to, to learn this from you since you, you have this, such a strong study group right now. <laughs> And um, so my uh, next question is, I saw on this uh, YouTube video that in, in the ASCO 2017 highlights for ovarian cancer, you said that you're happy about the results of Lion of desktop three. It's not that, not only that you're glad with the results, but you also proved that the society was able to conduct such surgical trials. So can you share with us what are the differences between surgical trials and medication trials? What do you see as the oh, main yes.
1: challenges? Yes, yes, yes. yes.
4: I'm, I'm very
1: proud of gynecological oncology because uh, we have performed uh, a lot of surgical trials in our field uh, in cervical cancer and in ovarian cancer. Surgical trials have, have uh, much higher hurdles than chemo trials or, or medical trials. I mean, the, it, it starts with finances. So the support to develop a new drug is huge when there is a pharma company uh, supporting a trial. For surgery, there's no company uh, supporting surgical trials. So that's the first point. So financing is much harder to get. The other one is that it's pretty easy to recruit a patient into a treatment trial where they receive drug A or drug B, whether you have two capsules or three tablets or an infusion or two infusions. That is not so hard to convince a patient that that may lead to progress. But to tell a patient that she becomes operated or not is difficult and to make to make clear to the patient that uh, randomization decides whether she gets operated or not is is a big big hurdle and there has to be a lot of trust that patients accept to do in that way so so for for the individual patient to be recruited the workload the effort for the doctor is at least 10 times higher as for a medical trial. So so it's funding, it's it's convincing the patient and it's the hospital itself. I mean, hospitals, surgical departments live from operations and randomizing a patient not to be operated means a loss for the department and your economical people will tell you, oh, oh, that's not good. And those outpatient community who sends, uh, transfers a patient to your department, in my case, they say, oh, there's Andreas Dubois, the famous surgeon. I send a patient for operation to him. And then I, I send back, oh, we have randomized her to chemo alone. That is not always accepted as well. In the outpatient community, so it's a lot of work, and and, and uh, you have to in, do a lot of information to everybody to find acceptance for such a trial. So when you took online, line is a little bit easier because it was only lymphadenectomy, so the patient get operated anyhow. So it's a little bit easier than desktop, because in desktop it was operation or no operation. And believe me, 10 gynecologists sending a patient, if you ask them, they are very firm. Five of them saying, this patient has to be operated. Another four say, this patient is not good for operation. And only one says, okay, I accept that you're doing a study. So much harder to do surgical trials. The trial performance itself is all, also harder, it's much easier to document whether you give one in, one infusion or two or drug A or B, you can even blind it and then you can do your, your analysis in the end. But how, how to blind, how to make sure that you don't have a bias in your study when you are not able to blind it, you are not able to blind it and you have you, people have to do They don't give a drug and the drug works, but the surgeon works and how to guarantee and to inform and to train the surgeon, not to be biased on that. So there are so many, so many impacts here and documentation. I mean, it's not so easy to document surgery. Uh, acetus, you document the disease and what you have done and it's very individual. It's much easier to document, oh, I take 50 milligrams of that and 20 milligrams of that. Yeah. Huh? So what I want to say, it's a bunch of, of hurdles you have to cross to perform a successful surgery surgical trial. And therefore, for me, the 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 crown of of, of gynecological oncology is being part of surgical studies. It's much more difficult than anything else. But having said that, on the other side, there is such a big need to bring evidence to that field. You remember when I started with the Dukes of Oncology, they knew everything. They knew everything and every time what to do. But we know now that sometimes you have surprises. In line, it was a surprise that lymphadenectomy is not beneficial for the patient. In the LAXE trial, it was a surprise that not every endoscopist can do, can do over time. So it's so important to do it.
4: Thank you so much, Professor Du Bois. The world is, the field is full of surprises. Thanks, thanks to you. Thank you. So um, now I'm handing uh, it to Alex.
1: Hi, Alex. Thank you.
4: Hi, Professor.
1: Professor Debois, tell us, are surgeons born or made? Can everybody become a skilled surgeon by practice? A very, very, very good question. When I was a little younger and starting all that career, uh, especially my surgical track, I would have answered surgeons are made and you can teach everybody. Now that I have taught two generations or three generations of fellows, very, very, very many, many, many people having experienced a lot of let's say training, training curricula, I would say they are born and made, I have, experienced, I have experienced colleagues, very, very beautiful people, very smart, but they will never succeed for the champions league of surgery. So on the other hand, I have seen some, some very, very talented technical people who never understand the disease. So I think it's, it's always it's brain and hand and heart. And that all that three has to work together. And some, some parts are born your personality. I mean, if you don't have empathy and you're not, you're not loving your patients, then you never will become a good surgeon, but that, that you bring with, with you into the clinic, but then you have to be, You have to have your heart training. So it's both, born and made. That's my conclusion at the end of my career. (laughs) Thank you. Excellent conclusion. And finally, what advice would you have for a gynecology-oncology fellow? Uh, So one advice is, if you plan your career and you plan your training, try to get access to an excellent center. So, and and you always can go back wherever you are from, but go to an excellent center where you have excellent teachers, where you have large volumes, where you can see the rare tumors and where you have all the options where where you have an interdisciplinarity, where you have all the disciplines, where you have all the techniques and everything. So, so if you start or if you complete your career in a, in a, let's say, moderate moderately high level center, then you will probably not overcome a moderate level. So, so if you decide to really want to become a leader, you have to go where the leaders are, and then you can go back and can further develop it and become the, the best pupil are getting better than their teachers, yeah? So then you can develop, but to, to start to get your basic, it's very, it's very important yeah, that you choose the right training place. And everything else I have said before about empathy and all that, but the, good, the right place is also very important. And good teachers, good mentors. Perfect. So I
0: think.
3: Thank you. Thank you. We are, we are, we are so impressed. Speechless. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: So that's all our questions. Um, we've certainly learned so much from your insights and um a lot of honest um takeouts to, to think about and food for thought for a lot of our um junior trainees in gynaecology Oncology. Um you started the podcast by sharing a story um about a patient who lived a very long time under your care and I just wanted to say that it's not just that one patient there are hundreds and thousands of women around the world who have been um, affected by the work which you've done and are indebted to you for, for um, their care so thank you for the contribution you've made to the field of gynaecology oncology and thank you for coming on our podcast you're an inspiration to us all.